0: You know roughly three years best case to go from one million to ten million. It takes four years roughly to go from ten million to a hundred million, and it probably takes one or two you know tack on another year or so before you go public. So yeah, it takes a long time to build an enterprise software company.
1: Welcome to Array Podcast, the platform to discover hacks and skills you need at different stages of building your business. I'm your host, Shruti Gandhi, founder and managing partner of Array Ventures. Array Ventures invest in founders focused on solving problems, leveraging big data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Visit us on Array.vc. Array.vc. Today on our podcast, we have Rory Driscoll, co-founder and partner at Scale Venture Partners. Scale just raised their sixth fund of $400 million, managing over $1.5 billion in assets under management. Scale had interesting beginnings as a firm. They were an in-house VC fund inside Bank of America and spun out as a separate firm in 2007 by Rory Driscoll and Kate Mitchell. Scale is one of the few model VC funds in Silicon Valley with a woman founder and many women investing partners. Scale has been a helpful partner to Array since our early days and one of the few firms such as Array that focuses on enterprise investing. Rory has led investments and sits on the boards of companies such as Box, DocuSign, Pantheon, and many more, where Scale invested in these companies around Series A or B until they go public. I wanted to sit down with Rory and learn how to build a long-lasting firm and how his views on enterprise sector has evolved over the years. In this episode, Rory discusses the typical life cycle of an enterprise startup, their path to IPO, his views on ICOs, how to pick an investment strategy, when and if to consider changing your investment strategy, and much more. Let's dig in here.
2: Roy, let's begin by learning about how one starts thinking about a
1: stage sector geography of a new v c firm that they're starting
0: I think you go at all those decisions on stage sector, et cetera, via a combination of you know a couple of things. one is what strategy you think will work in the abstract i.e. what do you think the best strategy is, which is how you know in some intellectual sense you'd want to go at it, and then to the second to a More pragmatic comment What strategy do you think is doable for you? Right? And you know, for example, you might decide that the best place to invest dollars in the whole wide world is you know, late stage biotechnology making hundred million dollar investments in any individual deal, but you can only raise 10 million bucks and your value and your experiences in IT, so it doesn't matter. So, you know, a huge amount of strategy is you know, what's the right strategy? I mean, intellectually, you go at it from what's the best place. Period. Full stop. <coughs> Pragmatically, you go at it from what's the most? Where can I succeed with the skills and assets and attributes I have to bring to the table? Right.
1: How often do you think a VC firm should rethink their strategy?
0: I mean, anyone who you know you know freezes their strategy and says done is an idiot. You know, conversely, in a ten-year business, if your strategy is changing every year, it's probably the wrong strategy. Right. If you step back and think about us, we mean, just talking about our strategy and, and the evolution of our strategy. Initially, you know, when we first would be available as our sole limited partner, we were diversified fund because that's what the bank wanted us to do. So a third of what we did was software, a third biotech, and a third semiconductors. And, you know, once we spun out, we discovered that the independent LPs much prefer to do their own diversification. So we would be a lot better off focusing just on one sector and letting them do the diversification and then secondly we discovered that you know the returns especially in the last decade were very different by sector you know i'm always the first to say you absolutely can make money i think in semiconductors and biotech it's just different strategies our strategy of kind of focusing on companies that were early in revenue and looking to scale and had that kind of risk and return profile was very hard to replicate in particular in biotech where it's much more science bet so it just became obviously it didn't make sense to keep the three sectors together, and you know, in a yeah super collaborative way, we really just decided to focus down on software and technology in you know 2009 on for, for our third fund, our first independent fund. So from then on, it's been kind of all software, and the stage has been broadly similar in terms of you know early in revenue companies starting to scale. So obviously, one big turn of the strategy crank in 08, when we decided to niche down on focus on one sector. That's one example of where, you know, you, you make a fundamental decision. You're not making that decision every year, but at some point you say this sector is working and that sector is not. You know, since then, I don't think there's been a violent change of strategy, but, you know, you do have constant iteration. I mean, I think that we've crept steadily earlier on average in terms of our kind of median revenue in terms of the typical scale company. Which is now you know probably one or two million dollars in run rate revenue just after product market fit and you know looking to expand you know maybe five seven years ago that typical investment might have been in six or seven million dollars in run rate revenue, and the rationale for that is you know a combination of you know our increasing comfort level in underwriting that early expansion coupled with the increasingly high valuations of the companies in later stages, so that's an example of you know I'd say iterative change. In you know, a strategy, rather than fundamental change. So yeah, you do both. You do both all the time.
1: In your experience, how long does it take for a company to go from one million ARR to public in today's market?
0: You know, roughly three years, best case, to go from one million to ten million. It takes four years, roughly, to go from ten million to a hundred million, and it probably takes one or two you know, tack on another year or so before you go public. So, yeah, it takes a long time to build an enterprise software company, right? It is what it is, right? There's no easy way to overcome the physics of, you know, customer or customer adoption by large enterprises. So that's just the nature of the beast. So, I mean, has it elongated by a year or two? Yeah, almost certainly, because you can't take a company public at $60 million doubling but losing money um, now in the way you could in the late 90s But fundamentally, the business dynamics are much the same. So um, if you don't like that, don't do the business, right? Venture is a long-term business, and that's the one thing that will always be true about it. Um, Second thing, you know, are we more or less impatient? I'm not impatient at all. I think that the reality is, you know... Yes, your investors want to see exits because they want to see proof of life and proof of value creation. But the reality is, if you have good companies, the longer you hold them, the happier you are, right? Um, You know, I think that as long as they're accreting value, you're doing okay, right? I mean, I do believe enterprise software companies should go public and will go public, and they're not going to stay private forever. That that idea is silly on its face and even more silly with further analysis. But, you know, it takes time. It takes time. You know, if it takes, if you go a year earlier, it's going to take you seven years on average versus six years on average. You know, so be it. When it, when it happens, it'll be good. So I'm not overly thinking about it, right?
2: Do you even see companies at your, you know, your later stages um, explore the ICO route to get liquidation or, you know? I, um,
0: I, 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 you, did you say ICO? Yeah, ICO. N- not, not IPO. All right, no, spend no time on it whatsoever, hasn't cropped up, Um, you know, not a believer, Um, you know, where do you start? I mean, I I really don't want to be on the board of a company that issues, I mean, let's start with the fact that it's not really clear what the securities law implications are and thus you're exposing yourselves to all that liability. Um, and then secondly, you're, you know, if, if if you're not in and of itself, I mean, the IC, I mean, if I was a totally early stage company with a great idea, and I wanted to raise some capital at, you know, very non dilutive price, go team. You know, if that's what the market will bear, go for it. But if you've created value, think about it. You've a company doing fifty, sixty million dollars in revenue. You've clearly got fundamental value. At some point in the near future, you are going to Be able to go public or get sold and get, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of real, you know, hard U.S. dollars for your efforts. Are you really going to pollute that cap table with some kind of ICO, which, you know, on the positive side, you know, may allow you to access capital more cheaply? That's a positive. Second positive, it may allow you to ruthlessly sell your shares and, you know. Get maybe even uh, I C O stock value price appreciation for that in the near term in a pump and dump scheme, but in return, um, you know, long term, just is fraught with risk. I mean, maybe so. No, I I I, I like I don't spend any time thinking in it. Out.
1: As you know, Dropbox went public earlier this year. You're on the board of Box. How do you think about two companies in the space? And and their progress.
0: Look, I think that yeah, they've been a competitor yeah, some conceptual Silicon Valley level a competitor to us, though I think we occupy very different stages of the marketplace. I'd never speak for box. I would leave that to Aaron who speaks so much more eloquently than I do. You know, just as a technology investor, I admire what Dropbox did. They built a great consumer product, they pioneered a lot of this adoption cycle. You know, in the low end of the enterprise, they do a nice job. And the number of people on the planet who create a billion-dollar revenue company is pretty darn small.
2: Do you think that
1: the enterprise, pure enterprise companies, get um, unfairly undervalued in the public markets? Or is there a shift happening in that right now?
0: Well, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, you know, I, first, I don't think anything... But uh, You know, fair is a funny word. I don't think, you know, obviously it's... Um, I don't think anything is undervalued over an extended period of time because that's how capitalism works, right? I think comp- the way I'd say this is: enterprise and consumer businesses have very different trajectories and durability. What you tend to see in the consumer, I mean, and you're, you're on on by three or four dimensions, consumer businesses grow hyper quickly, right? And tend and in the internet space can be wildly profitable. They tend to be oligopolies. I'm sorry, monopolies, right? There tends not to be three of them four of them. There has to be one of them. And being in the number two, three, or four player is just a a, a sucker's game, right? Conversely, they also are vulnerable to fads and can over time fade. Enterprise revenue, it it takes a lot more money to build an enterprise company. It's more more linear rather than explosive. Uh, Every customer is a considered purchase. The network effects, if any, are much lower Right? And all those speak, and they tend to be oligopolies, not monopolies. So, in other words, multiple companies in the same space. As a, on the other hand, the positive is they're fairly durable, right? And it's more of them. I mean, if you look at the numbers, you know, ballpark, uh, enterprise software companies or enterprise tech companies tend to be 70% plus of the total tech IPOs and consumer plus or minus 30%. And of the value, it tends to be 60% plus consumer. So, no surprise, look at Google and Facebook. Consumer technology, consumer companies, there are small numbers of enormous wins and a lot of roadkill. Enterprise, it's still hard, but there are a slightly larger number of really good outcomes in the, you know, 10 billion, 1 billion, 10 billion plus range. But, you know, the largest, the most successful enterprise software company in the last 10 years is obviously Salesforce. Its market cap, I think, is 70, 80 billion, though I haven't looked at it in the last few weeks. Whereas, you know, Facebook's market cap is $400 billion. You know, if you're in the right one, it's a great business, but there's just less wins. And so
2: this, you know, and you're never going to get into the consumer side of investing, you think? Or I should say never, never,
0: You don't never say never. I mean, you know, I I don't say never. I mean, I think that, you know, look, the the, the wisdom of venture and, you know, Buffett, there's a bunch of cliches, and investing, I should say, not just venture, is, you know, you don't have to do every good deal. You just have, the deals you do have to be good. And then secondly Mm -hmm. is... You know, you have to understand the space you're playing in, right? And you know, we look. We have a business that works well for us, and more importantly, works well for our limited partners and our investors. We we know how to make money in the space we play in. Uh, before I'd go into any, before I'd add any other space to it. Before I'd add a, you know, I just want to know that risk-adjusted, they offer the same or better returns than doing what I'm doing, right? It's back to what I said earlier. You never say your strategy's done forever. But you have a high bar before you say, I mean, yay, I love, you know, if you have something that's working before you decide to thrash it and go do something else, you should be thoughtful.
1: Grory, how is the consumerization of the enterprise and bottom-up adoption changing the way software gets adopted in enterprises today? I remember in one of our conversations you had mentioned that the sales guy from 1970 can still do a good job of selling software today in 2018.
0: I mean, I think, you know, consumerization to some, look, the reality is does the software have to be better? Yes. Are there a series of software products where you can have organic ground up adoption that gives you a massive business advantage? Yes. I mean, Box uh, uh, took advantage of that. I would say Slack is arguably a great example of that, whereby, you know, bottoms up use case and functionality for a free product allows a huge amount of adoption, and then you can drive that upsell cycle. There's also products that are totally different. You know, ServiceNow and Workday are the two largest, you know, know, Salesforce went public over 10 years ago. In the last 10 years, the two largest market cap software companies are ServiceNow and Workday. They're both big ticket enterprise software companies selling to the CFO or the CIO. And as I said to you when we talked a sales executive from 1960 at IBM selling accounting software could walk in and within 24 hours would understand how to sell workday or service now. Call high, call on the CFO, f- focus on the features and benefits, deliver great professional services, convince the customer you're the gold standard, and get the deal. They could do it eyes wide, j- eyes wide open. <laughs> Easy. So, um, So to that extent, yes. Consumerization is a thing for certain parts of the software market, but, you know, large parts of the enterprise software market are about large companies buying systems of record that are a considered purchase, where, yes, usability is a factor, but it's not the only factor, right? And, you know, all the enterprise attributes around reliability, ability to deliver value, proven proven track record... Managing complexity, able to handle all the enterprise complexity and process complexity, come into play, and it's not just about quote unquote consumerization.
1: What's in store for the future of enterprise over the next few years? Now,
0: um, you know, I mean, yeah, the, 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 we always like to say differently. At some level, it's going to be the same as 2017 and 16. You know, growing at five or six percent, which is all it does. I mean, our companies grow a lot faster than that because they're taking share away, but I always start because we tend to be so oh my God, everything's changing so fast here in Silicon Valley. I always start by positing the you know relative predictable, steady pace of the overall industry. that said, I mean, I think the things that will happen in two thousand and eight i mean I think that I think there's a huge amount of consolidation coming um in the in the kind of wor- simplistic workflow saAS marketplaces, because I think those um a lot of those products a lot of those markets have enough maybe arguably too many competitors and um I think that um we'll see that so you know I think there's you know like hundreds and sometimes even thousands of companies in some of these spaces, and it's not going to end well. Right? It won't happen until the tail end of this business cycle when these large companies start to flatten out in growth rate and decide, oh my God, I'm Salesforce, I'm ServiceNow, I'm Workday, I have account control, I just need to add all these ancillary modules. I think we'll see a fair amount of consolidation. I don't think it'll happen in a pretty fashion for some. So that's one trend. You know, on the positive side, um, you know, we continue to like certain aspects of art, uh, artificial intelligence and what it's enabled in terms of very specific, you know, highly ROI-centric use cases. Uh, you know, we're not believers in the general AI, figure everything out, and there's a lot of hyperbole in that space, but there's also some very real companies that are attractive. So that's an area that's interesting. We, um, You know, and uh, again, I... Loathing the names, they're what folks call frontier tech, we've made uh, successful what we think are successful early investments in a drone company, a drone software company, and a, 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 a uh, which is Drone Deploy, and a robotics company, Locus Robotics, both of which we think are very non-frontier in the sense of they're delivering core business advantage for very straightforward and high ROI use cases. So we like some of that, call it, you know, frontier tech coming in from the cold um, to just be normal software, to be normal kind of business software opportunities. So that's been interesting for us. Um, yeah. So um, and then, you know, at the infrastructure layer, I play I tend to invest more in apps, but my colleagues, Ariel and Andy, invest a lot in infrastructure. There is just continues to be this inexorable move of compute to the cloud, which is a once every 10 every decade, every two decades trend, and you're either ahead of it or behind of it, and if you're behind of it, you're toast, right? And I think that, you know, a lot of our investments over the last ten, five, ten years have been predicated on that trend. That it's clearly come to fruition, and we're going to continue to back that trend. I mean, what I, about
2: edge computing, you know, which is kind of like the a little bit of the opposite of that cloud it, it is,
0: and I believe, the funny thing is, you, can, you know, as I always say to people in, something we appear to have forgotten in politics. Two things can be true at the same time, even just because different people uh-huh. say them. I mean, I think that the cloud computing is absolutely a thing for the, you know, the always-connected enterprise compute platform where having it in a data center in your office doesn't make sense when you can put it in the cloud. But at the same token, there are lots of things, devices, gotta hate the Internet of Things word, but there are lots of physical things in the real world, doing things where the compute has to be done in real time. I mean, you know, every drone that we manage has an element of edge computing to it in real time, you kind of on the hardware device compute, as does all the robotics companies we invest in. They have, you know, both a on-device, real-time uh, set of software technology, as well as they are also cloud-connected, and some stuff happens in the back end. The best example is, of course, autonomous driving there's simply no way you're going to make those decisions fast enough if every decision is made in the cloud. At the same time, all those autonomous driving companies have a portion of what they're doing that is cloud-attached. So I don't see the two things as um, in opposition. I think that there are certain things that one would just put in the on the cloud because it's cheaper and better, and there are some things that one wouldn't put it. And I think, which actually gets to just a more general belief statement about how we approach markets and all that, when you... If you go beyond the, if all you use is the buzzwords, it's hard to distinguish fact from fiction. The way to distinguish fact from fiction, and more importantly, the way to you know find differentially good investments, um, is to just kind of go a couple of levels deeper into what's actually happening in the very tangible, fact-based world of you know what is this customer doing with this, rather than the conceptual world of what might be happening in some you know, the fevered imagination of some futurologist.
2: The, the general AI seems to be unfavored by most of us, but then there is the, we want to solve particular problems in particular verticals. Are there big enough markets verticals that AI company could solve that is big enough for it to not become so niche of a product? And are there many of those companies that, out there that you think you can back? <laughs>
0: Sure, and you know, yeah, I think the answer is yes. I think that, um, but with some skepticism. I mean, I think that um, if you look objectively at where AI is in enterprise software today, I always remind people of the two thousand and sixteen and seventeen IPOs. Almost none of them have a meaningful AI component. So it is good and appropriate to have an element of skepticism about where it is. It's it's not far along. It's still TBD. I think that there are opportunities, both in verticals and certain kinds of horizontal use cases. I absolutely do. I, and I think that, you know, AI is not a thing, it's a series of technologies that, you know, um, and techniques that yeah collectively allow computers to work more like humans. And what we find is that every AI adoption curve is different and it's a function of the particular problem it's trying to solve. and you know, some of them can be solved today and deliver high ROI, and that's where the big companies will be created. Some of them can be solved today, but only deliver a marginal lift on what has gone before. And those are the kind of things where the incumbent software companies will probably just attach the, um, some mild AI to their existing product and you know make it better, but not fundamentally need to a disruptive opportunity. And then in some cases, the problem's not tractable for five or ten more years. And every dollar you spend on it will be wasted, right? So, you know, piecing those out from the, you know, on the one hand, if it's too small to matter, the existing guys get the money. And if it's too intractable to solve today, you're going to waste your dollars. And in between is the sweet spot of solvable now and different enough in terms of tech barriers and ROI to the customer that you can build a company. So that's kind of what we're spending a lot of time trying to filter our way through.
2: Um, Awesome. So I guess before we move on from this general topic, what should founders look for when they approach you? And what time are they ready to be like a scale venture partner investment?
0: Sure. I mean, I think that especially for larger AI enterprise software products, you know, you're not looking for 20 customers because you're not going to get it. You know, I think I like to see, you know, plus or minus a minimum of five customers especially if they're big ticket, and a sense more than anything else. So that's, that's just uninteresting. The real point is this, an ability to articulate what exactly your value proposition is, how much of that value proposition, you, you know, whether or not you can quantify and prove that you can deliver that value and whether the kind of buyer can use it and find it valuable, right? Because a lot of times, you know, we have this, hey, we're going to help these guys you know, we're going to help our enterprise customers make these decisions. But what you discover when you're talking to the enterprise is, yeah, we should decide that, but God, there's just so many other things to do, right? You know, and that you don't get the lift that one would nearly think one would in the, you know, a priori, it all sounds very clever and smart and useful. But, you know, when you've worked at any large company, I mean, they're so screwed up not screwed up is a bit harsh, but it's hard enough to take the basic steps that you need now that the hierarchy of things that they're gonna fix, you might find that yours is interesting but it's two or three years away before they get to that problem. So we would look for companies that have found a vein of customers for whom they're for, for whom they can deliver a business improvement, either revenue or cost, that's so profound and so immediate that customers simply have to take advantage of it, right? Versus a hey, this is cool and we can help you predict this and maybe in the future you could optimize that spend, but oh God, I got too much else to do.
2: And what's the, you mentioned uh, a little bit of a con- contract value. What was the amount that is large? Give it like a number? Like a two fifty k annual contract size, or like sure, I mean, that's good enough. I mean,
0: my, my my that's totally fine. My point is merely, I mean, going back to the your 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 comment, throwing it back at you, the democratization comment, right? The kind of software that's sold via the democratization of X Y or Z tends to be seven k, ten k, you know, five k, whatever, right? You know, lots and lots of horizontal customers who all happily buy. That's what democratization means. Lots and you know, of people buying. Cheap software. The typical AI product, and it's not—it's a generalization, but it's broadly true. The typical AI product—it's a complex deployment cycle. There's a reason, some amount of customization. They're 50 grand, 100 grand products, right? I don't know any AI software product that's you know been sold at enterprises for 5k, right? So my point is merely: you're not going to have. I mean, you're back to you know again: you're not going to have that groundswell adoption that. You, you, by implication, so love in the case of the democratization comment in AI because it's just not that kind of thing. So you're going to have smaller number of customers, more dollar commitment for a customer. Is it fifty or hundred, or is it you know half a million? I don't. I to me, it's very situation dependent. But my point is merely, it's not lots and lots of freemium customers upselling to one grand ACV deals.
2: Yeah, um, I guess. I have to ask, but are there any regrets in your venture career, things you would have done to friendly companies you should have invested in?
0: Of course there are. Um, you know, because let's start with the basic fact is if you, are, if you do not have decision regret or what, you know, anti-portfolio or whatever you want to call it, if you do not have decision regret about a significant number of opportunities in your venture career, then you're doomed because you're not even in the sweet spot, Right. Because if you think about it, you know, the, y- y- step one is getting to see the deal and step two is picking it. And then step three, obviously, is winning it, right? But the likelihood of you seeing three good deals that you do, two good deals that you do every year and not seeing any other good deals is low. So if, you, if, if you're if you in the sweet spot for good deals and you have good deal flow, you're going to miss good deals. And if you're not missing good deals, it probably, it's highly unlikely that the deals you're doing are also good, right? So, you know, I remember early on in my career, I didn't have nearly as much decision regret. And in retrospect, and I think I knew at the time, it's because I wasn't, you just, you know, as a starter person, it's hard to even get in the flow. So other than, you know, blindly finding one or two great deals in your first couple of years, most of the time, you didn't even get in the room with a good deal. So now, you know, we've really optimized that over the last 15, 20 years. And we really, you know, focus on our deal flow, focus on making sure we see every good deal and you know we have a sense of what percentage of good deals every year we see and because we see you know a significant percentage of the good deals you you by definition have decision regret i mean just this year i you know i look at it i look, not this now last year you know i look at mule app dynamics and octo three great companies all three we talked to all three hours in the room and we talked to and we're not in them and i have acute decision regret you know, then you look back on the year you made that decision and back to my comment on time, it was an '10 decision. And you know, fortunately in those same years we did exact target box and docuSign. So I feel okay, but would I love to have um, some money in MuleSoft? We should have backgregged? Absolutely. Should we have done App Dynamics? Absolutely. So yes, we have regret. And every year you have regret. And I, I go back to what I say, and we review, one of the reasons it's top of mind right now is, in fact, later this week, we have our upside, and that's one of the things we review. You know, what do we miss and why do we miss them, right? And in one sense, it's harder to talk about the deals where you saw the deal and didn't do it, but it's better that you saw the deal than that you never even saw it. I mean, what, what causes you real heartburn is when there's deals going down and being successful and you weren't aware of them and you didn't even see them when you had a chance. That's that's obviously.
2: What, how does one, as an aspiring long-term VC, networks are clearly very important. How and you made a comment on early on in your career. Maybe you're not part of them. So how did you become part of these networks where you feel confident that you're seeing every good deal?
0: Well, those two sentences aren't connected. I'm an awful networker, right? Just let's start with that, and I still am. And I'm not sure I'm really great staying in touch with people. And if anyone's listening to this, that. I should have stayed in touch with oops, sorry. Right.
2: Like,
0: <laughs> you know, so I, I don't do a great job of the you know, the people I mean I tend to be like I, I think, you know, I, I my style is I'm you know, I have a set of capital to invest and I just try and meet companies all the time. Right? Rather than, you know, trying to, you know, abstractly meet people and hope that in the future it turns to good things. I'm like I am you know, I have a I have an open to meet, as it were, right? So all the time, I'm just looking to meet companies in the spaces we're interested in. And just, in the end, venture capital is about meeting a 1,000 people a year as a firm, maybe 1,400 as a firm, maybe 200 as an individual, 300 as an individual, and saying no 298 times and saying yes twice and getting that decision correct. So I just, I'm always willing to meet folks. And you know, I try and give a straight answer and if I'm a no, which obviously 298 times out of 300 you are, you try and give a sense of why, right? So I didn't build a net, you know, as I say, I'm just not good at all the networky stuff. It just, which means, you know, it takes longer to build a career. You just gotta crank your way out, do good, you know, do good work, pick good companies, work with them, over time they're successful, over time that, you know, kind of kicks into your benefit. And then eventually, you just get to critical mass of good stuff. You know, we've been lucky enough over the years to back some great people who've made us all look smart.
2: So you, so if you don't have an uh, extroverted or networking-oriented personality, and, er, and early on, you do not have uh, some good deals, or arguably... These enterprise companies take a long time anyway to sure. break out. Yeah. So you're kind of doomed? Is, is that, I mean, if I hear that right. Uh, no, you're
0: not doomed like at me. all. No, I, I didn't say that at all. I mean, I think that, you know, in the end, yeah, the thing that's, yeah, the thing, you're not doomed at all. No, I think that, look, well, I'll come back to the timings in a second. In the end, assuming you have a fund or some capital, right, you're trying to invest your capital. And the companies are trying to find capital. Right. So rather than, you know, w- w- running around conferences trying to say, well, you're great, what you're going to do is just find those companies, pick up the phone, pick up, send an email and say, look, I mean, I, you know, pick markets that you think there's going to be winners and go call on those companies. Right. And this gets back to the, you know, you have to have a strategy that's commensurate with, um, you know, what you can achieve. You know, if you're so like, you know, obnoxiously, if you're 21 and you've never worked in an enterprise software company trying to do series A and B investments where you know a typical software entrepreneur at that stage has a company established and is going to be competing against you know some really good venture firms it's probably a mistake so maybe you just do seed and early right but um at the end of the day it's a lot easier to talk to the person who's trying to raise the money uh, for their firm for their company and just decide the, the thing that is ultimately in your control is the the good news is it's the most important part of venture capital which is, you know, you, yes, you've got to try and build your deal flow, but the, I always say to people, picking is the hard part, right? I say it to the point of tedium in our firm, right? Is um, that, you know, in the end, if you see 100 crappy deals, 100 deals and 98 of them are crappy and two of them are good, the hard part of this job is picking. If you're able to pick the good deals, then provided you just put in the time, you just build a portfolio. And in the end, we're paid to pick good deals, Right we're not paid to be known, we're not paid to be famous, we're not paid to be networked. We are paid to pick good deals now you need to network to find good deals, being famous helps to find good deals being a quote unquote brand, whatever that means, I believe helps to find good deals though I don't personally know um but in the end, you have to find them and then you have to pick them and finding is hard and picking is harder, so you're not doomed if you don't have you just merely have to put yourself in front of enough deals, however you do it, that are willing to take your capital and then pick the one that you think is the best and then repeat um, for 10 years. (laughs) As as
2: long as you can convince people to give you capital for 10 years without proving... Yes, which is the other side of
0: it. Let let, let me come to that for a second. You're absolutely right. I mean, mean, one of the things, and I I talk about that for a second in terms of your strategy as anyone who wants to be a VC, right? One of the things that... People don't talk about enough. Remember, I made that comment about how you pick your strategy. In large part, should be determined by what is realistically doable for you. You're right? If you mm-hmm. decide to build an early-stage enterprise software and um, focused uh, seed fund, right? Then realistically, it could be nine years before your first IPO. Right? And you know, hopefully, by five or six years, there's enough validation that you feel good. But, I mean, I recently saw a factoid, I don't know if it's true or not, but, you know, the Y Combinator, whom I think is one of the world's best businesses, just an amazing company right. to own. And I, that sounds very cold-blooded to describe as a company to own, but it is. It's a money-making machine because you give away nothing and you get ownership it for free. Right. But, um, um, yeah, insanely jealous. But um, <laughs> that mean, they too. haven't had I, an IPO yet. I think Dropbox will be the first IPO. Think about that. But it takes a freaking long time to go all the way through so if in, if you need capital to raise you know maybe maybe three funds along the way to get to that point right before you have real validation that's a pause point right and you got to ask yourself do you have the kind of lps who'll stick with that because if you don't you right you're going to i mean you're going to find that you raise one fund maybe two funds at the high you know at, in the boom times when everyone's feeling happy and brave and strong and then you still haven't got proof but The portfolio is good, but you just don't get the time to play out the hand, right? That's an entirely plausible outcome. I mean, I've known, I've seen it happen to firms. I've heard of it happening. And you just look back and you go, oh, that firm blew up at the bottom of the market. In retrospect, that portfolio was an awesome portfolio. And they should have hung in there. But that's just the way it goes, right? Go back to my comment. It's why... There are many reasons being, you know, the newest partner at an old line established firm is great, but one of the best is you've got time to build your, tra- and I, you know, this is not what I had, so I, I'm jealous of it, right? It would have been 20 years ago, I should say, that you've got time to build your track record under a halo of comfort that the firm is going to be there, right? You know, yes. Sequoia or Greylock can hire a new partner and they can truly say to him or her, go be the best you can be. Dabble in early stage, these three new areas that we're interested in, you know, you've got 10 years and, you know, we're not expecting you to, you know, put food on the table for another five or six or seven years, right? And that allows that person to be the best investor they can be without having to think about, you know, how do you show returns early? Because I think, you know, the more you have to do that, the more you have to optimize not around the very, very long ball, but the longest possible ball you can play and still stay in the game. Right. And you know, speaking you know for scale, I mean, you know, early on, as a firm, you know, with a financial investor as a as an LP, and you know, then as a newer firm, you feel pressure to produce results. So I think that impacts your strategy, not for the worse or better, just for the different, right? You know, there's a reason we kind of focus on in revenue companies. I think especially early on, it allows you to show traction more quickly. You know, we were lucky. You know, we spun, we raised our first independent fund, fund three in '09. By 2013, we had our first IPO and it was a very successful one, Exact Target. So, um, and glad that we did because it will be healthy with fund four and then fund five, right? There's no good being right in the long term when, you know, as Mr. Keynes pointed out all those years ago, in the long term, we're all dead. You don't want to be the guy who's dead in the long term but right. So, you've got to cut your strategy to that too.
2: So now, shifting it a little bit, you've done a you and Kate have done a phenomenal job of growing out the team, um, and the gender diversity, if you will, um, you know some of my best sure. folks in venture that I love work work with you. And so, um, how did were, were you thoughtful? You or was it? How did you, how did you, you know, build a firm? Never thought about once. So <laughs>
0: Never. I mean, Jenny, and I'm not being cute or clever here, right, is that, you know, Kate and I were here in 2000 when we raised money from B of A. And, you know, she had a long time B of A um, kind of a management career there. Sharon joined us in 03 and Stacy in, I think, 02. And, you know, obviously more recently, um, CAC was with us for a long time. And then Susan, I, it just it wasn't a th- I mean, it wasn't a oh, my gosh, let's it just never crossed my mind. It was like the best person for the job in a very I mean I'm not look, I'm not saying I'm, you know in anyone, any way I'm not saying I'm wonderful. In fact I'm saying the exact opposite I'm blindly I'm blindly um invisible to it. It's just like they've been great people to work with. And you just hired them. I you know I don't know I suppose it's and it's a leap of imagination to say I suppose when you have one person partner, yeah, gender, and it's probably true in race as well. When you have one person there, it's easier for the next person to get in because we all do gravitate to the familiar. So it may well be as simple as, like a lot of things in life, path dependence. Having started with some, you just get more, right? And, you know, whatever it is, I'm good with it. And genuinely, we, you know, it's just the way the firm's evolved and couldn't be happier. And as I, But as I say, couldn't be happier not because oh, my God, I get top stakes in the gender diversity prize. I don't even care. Couldn't be happy because we've got good people to work with. End of.
2: Yeah. I think that's what I tell people. Like, my portfolio is very diverse, if you will, if you like, to, you know, put that title. But I usually tell people that if you put someone like me in a decision-making position, you know, the kinds of folks I see um, also are, you know, different. Um and they're more yeah, relatable to maybe someone like me. We're we're all biased in many ways. And so you know, yeah, we do. And
0: I unfortunately think that's exactly right. There is a bias, but uh, I think yes, that's pretty clear. Um Yes, and I, I do say I mean one, I I do think we have a wider stable of entrepreneurs and I, I think some of the most I mean again, it, I almost sound like I'm getting on a soapbox with everyone else and there's too many other people on the soapbox right now, so I don't want to crowd up there. But we have some great entrepreneurs who happen to be female and Maybe it's helped at the margin. You know, for someone like Stacy to have those relationships, I don't care what's caused it. I'm just glad that we're going to make a lot of money off them. How about that?
2: <laughs> That's excellent. So, any parting thoughts um, or kinds of areas that you you know you think founders should reach out to you on?
0: No, I mean, look, I'm always interested in seeing companies that are enterprise software companies that are in, you know, any kind of business software that's early in revenue and looking to scale. So, you know, once you've got product market fit, we're interested in meeting with you. Just shoot us an email. I buy us to meetings versus not meetings. It's how we learn. Um, you know, that's it.
2: Thank you, Rory. I appreciate your time.